You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise you that you have indeed covered us with the grace, the mercy of your Son, Jesus Christ. All of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, all of Scripture bears witness to Him, our Lord, our Messiah, our King. We pray now that as we turn to read and look at your word, that you would open our eyes to the illumination of the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be those who are changed by the word and the mercy of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, good morning, dear friends. Again, um, we are in this sermon series this summer called Taste and See. What we're doing is we're looking at this really remarkable theme of food, eating, and feasting as a theme of Scripture that literally runs from the first to the last, from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. And it's again and again we find a theme of communion, relationship with God. That over and over again, um, this, this symbol, this metaphor, um, this reality of feasting with God is used as an invitation of God into relationship with him, that we might know him and feed on him and taste and see, not just know in our brains, but taste and experience God's goodness for us. So um, last week, we started in the beginning in Genesis, and today we're looking at one of the great feasts in the book of Exodus. Our guest preacher today is um, my new friend who I'm really coming to love, Nathan Walton. Um, Nathan is the nine months now co-pastor of Easton Fellowship. Easton Fellowship is a congregation that is really dear to our church and dear to me. We helped, our church helped to start Easton Fellowship back in 2008, and I co-pastored that congregation down in Churchill for seven and a half years um, before I came here to be senior pastor. And Nathan is now serving there with our dear friend Don Coleman. Um, Nathan just tell you a little bit about him. Um, he formerly was the executive director of Abundant Life Ministry in Charlottesville, which is a community development organization, pretty similar to what some of the work that Churchill Activities and Tutoring does here in Richmond. Um, Nathan is a fellow UVA grad, um, and then he went to Duke to do his Master's of Divinity, and then he went back to UVA to get his PhD um, in Religious Studies. Uh, he is married to Diamond, and they have two little girls, um, Esperanza and Vera May, who I assume is named after Vera May Perkins. Yeah. Um, so grateful, um, so grateful that he's here today. Um, that partnership with Easton Fellowship is really important to us. So we're going to hear the scripture reading from Tracy Meadows today um, from Exodus. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles to Exodus 12, let's hear God's word, and then Nathan will come up and share God's word with us. Exodus chapter 12. Verses 1 through 17. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. 
take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. All right. Well, hello. I'm Nathan Walton. Um, as uh, Pastor Wilbur mentioned, I am Coley Pastor at Easton Fellowship, and um, it's good to be with y'all. I've heard a lot about Third Church. This is my first day like worshiping with you all, and I'm excited to be here. And so um, there is lots to cover, as you've heard in all those verses. So let's just pray, and then we'll invite the Holy Spirit to come be among us. Gracious God, thank you for um, this opportunity that we have, this opportunity to be with one another, this opportunity to experience the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, this opportunity for us to hear from you that we might be equipped to lean even further and further into your mission. God, we pray that in this time, God, you would speak, that you would lead us, that you would feed us, that you would form us, that our world might experience the freedom of your spirit. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it's good to be with you all. Um, When I first heard about the uh, current theme for this sermon series, I got really excited. And uh, the first reason I got excited was because as a kid, um, the Ten Commandments uh, movie starring Charlton Heston was one of my favorite movies. Uh, any fans here? <laughs> I see you. I see you. Um, so much so that I would watch and rewatch VHS recordings of the Ten Commandments as a kid, and I memorized most of the script. Now, in my defense, I'm from a town of about 300 people in Southern Virginia, very rural. And um, there wasn't a whole lot to do during summers back then. <laughs> but uh, in any case, revisiting this, this passage this week was really nostalgic for me. And um, I did resist the urge to send out video clips of the movie for sermon illustrations. And I know at least one person who's bummed about that. <laughs> it's awesome. But aside from Charlton Heston, the other reason why I got excited about this series was because eating is one of my favorite things to do. Who doesn't love food? 
But I love that during this series, we're acknowledging the roles that food and feasting play within Scripture and the ways that meals reveal more and more about who God is and what it means for God to feed us and to form us. Throughout this series, we're invited to to taste and see this good God who makes himself present in the tangible and the tactile, a God who enters into the messiness of our world and he sets a table for us, up close and personal. So today we're going to be looking at one of the most significant meals in all of Scripture, the Passover meal, a meal that marks the crucial moment of Israel's deliverance out of Egyptian slavery. This is a chance for us to revisit an ancient story, a story that many of us are already familiar with, and to ask the Holy Spirit to give us fresh eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit might say to us on this day, thousands of years later. So to provide some context, this passage draws us into this really dramatic scene. In the previous chapter, God has let Moses know that the tenth and final plague is just around the corner. And God says that around midnight, he will go throughout Egypt and all of the firstborn sons of Egypt will die from the firstborn of Pharaoh, even to the firstborn of the cattle. But then God says that he will distinguish between the Egyptians and the Israelites. As we turn the page to chapter 12 for today's scripture, God explains how this distinction will work in practice. Each family must kill a year-old male lamb without blemish and spread some of the blood on their door frames. Then they are to eat the meal of meat, bitter herbs, and bread without yeast. And while they eat, they have to dress like they are ready to leave at any moment, and they have to eat quickly in haste. Then God will pass over the land, bringing death to the firstborn of Egypt, Egypt but sparing Israel. When I was rereading this passage this week, one of the uh, things that struck me was the prevalence of suffering in the Exodus story. Earlier in chapter, th- chapter 3, Moses has an encounter with God through this burning bush. And God says that he has heard the cries of Israel from afar. God has heard their suffering. But now that we get to the climactic point of Israel's deliverance, God is going to show up. But the result is more death. I got to admit that when I was reading the passage this week, I couldn't help but feel some dissonance between the fact that this is the key catalyst for Israel's deliverance and at the same time, it's the height of Egyptian suffering. Israel's escape from Egypt is bookended by violence. First, God acknowledges the suffering back in chapter 3 at the burning bush, and then later, as the escape concludes, Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea. God intervenes in the middle of the story during Passover, and that brings both deliverance and death. Now, I don't know exactly what to do with that, and in addition to the complexities of the story, I don't know what it means to consider the death of Egyptian children, innocent children who weren't responsible for slavery, in a post-Uvaldi world, or to discuss the deliverance of Israelite children in a post-Roe v. Wade world. We can find ourselves caught in between death and deliverance. Needless to say, as I read this passage this week, it was a lot to process. A lot is going on in our country. Yet somehow God is present in all this. Somehow, somehow God is present in the deliverance and in death. The context for that presence in today's passage is the Passover meal. This Jewish ritual binds death and deliverance together, just like Holy Communion does so in the Christian tradition. Death and deliverance. 
And I think it's important to acknowledge the tension there. Now, the theologian in me really wants to connect all the dots and to tie them up in a nice theological bow that makes sense of the nuances of divine agency and suffering and evil in the world. But I also know that the writer of this passage was not attempting to write a philosophical treatise on theodicy. As some have argued in the past, it's possible that theodicy, the question of how to reconcile an all-powerful and all-loving God with the reality of suffering and evil in the world, is primarily a Western question. But this is not a Western text. So I'm not here to debate that point, but maybe a basic claim the passage is making is that this God of Israel is a just God. And in the context of Egyptian slavery, injustice has consequences. Maybe to put it a different way, justice has a price tag. It has a cost. Maybe that's part of what's going on in today's verses. Now, I don't know what all this means, but I do think that part of what this story is attempting to do is to show us just who this God of Israel is and what can happen when he confronts injustice. A God who doesn't fit into our tidy boxes of how we expect or think or want God to act, but a God who is good and present nonetheless, even in what is simultaneously a miraculous and messy moment in the history of Israel. God's presence means that things cannot stay the same. And as the story unfolds, the Passover is just as much about what God is doing among the Israelites as it's about what God is doing to the Egyptians. There are specific things that God's presence will require of Israel. Passover requires preparation. According to to tradition, no work is allowed other than the meal preparation of the Passover. They have to search the houses and remove any trace of leaven in their homes, whether that be wheat or rye or oats or barley or a spelt, any variation. And if any leftover is found, you have to burn it the morning of the first day of Passover. So from the removal of yeast prior to Passover to the ritual washing of hands during the Seder meal as it developed over time, Passover preparation is about purging and cleansing. Passover is not passive. When God stops by, things have to change. And in our own lives, the presence of God, God's passing through will always bring change. There is some reordering that has to happen when God passes by. I was reminded of this several years ago, um, soon after our first daughter was born, my wife Diamond and I were at home, and Diamond's mother made the trip uh, to spend some time with us and the newborn baby. Now, one thing that people often tell parents of newborns is that, um, you know, when you are preparing for, for hosting visitors, it's a good idea to make a list of the things that you want them to do around the house. Otherwise, you all know what happens. They just start doing things, right? Out of the kindness of their hearts. God bless them. But Diamond and I didn't do this, right? We had things to worry about, like trying to get, trying to nap when the baby naps, right? Trying not to be sleep deprived. So we didn't make any lists or anything like that. We forgot about it. But anyway, the visit is going well, and um, then Diamond's mother leaves, and um, then later that evening, we start to notice that things had changed a little bit in the house. While I was sitting in the living room, I could hear Diamond, uh, Diamond calling from down the hall, and she said, uh, Nathan, did we run out of toilet paper? Now, I was immediately concerned because my first thought was, there's nothing worse than needing toilet tissue in the moment when you, you know, <laughs> this is not good. It's also worse if you're at someone else's house and you're in a moment of need and don't have it. But I'll say that for next time I'm here. But then I thought about it and I was like, did I, did I move it? I was like, no, I, I just saw it. Like, this is crazy. I just saw it. 
So I got up, and Dami and I uh, soon realized that the toilet tissue that was behind the toilet was now inside the vanity. And we both tried to convince one another that the other person did not do it, right? Because I knew I did not do this. <laughs> that goes on for a while, sleep deprived, not a good situation. But then we began to notice that other things had been changed as well. Other supplies had been moved, the trash had been taken out. And our first response to this was, man, it would have been great to have been given a heads up about all the changes happening in our house. <laughs> but after a while, we thought about it and realized that the way things had been reordered and rearranged actually made things a bit better. One of the things that can easily happen with a newborn is that things like cleaning <laughs> and tidying up fall very low on the priority list because you're very tired. <laughs> it's easy to become so busy that you don't deal with the stuff necessary to keep the house in order. But now our bathroom was a lot more organized and the trash was gone. The result was actually better than the way things originally were. I think that realizing this is a big part of becoming willing to embrace God's presence in our lives. We can be hesitant to let God in because we're afraid that he either isn't going to like what he sees or God isn't going to leave things the way that he found them. He's going to tell us we need to change a few things. Maybe we fear he's going to tell us that there's some stuff in our lives that we're going to need to get rid of. So we say, God, I know that specific habit isn't healthy for me, but I don't really know if I'm ready to give it up. I don't really know. Or rationalize by saying, this thing can't really be that bad, right? Like, I've been living with this for so long. But maybe there's some yeast in our lives that need to be purged. Or maybe our fear is that God's going to tell us there's some things that we need to add into our lives that we've been resisting for a really long time. Maybe we've been saying for too long, God, I know I need that, but I'm just, you know, I'm just not ready. I know I need to reconcile with that person, but I'm just not ready. I know I need to eat healthier or become more active or Sabbath or rest like Rick taught us last week. But I just can't muster up the discipline. Maybe God's presence means that there are some new practices we need to take up. One thing I love about the way that God often does practices in the Bible is that there are often communal activities. You literally can't do Passover by yourself. You can try, but there are very specific things you can't do. And as we take up formative practices in our own lives, leaning into community can, can be a great way to pull us out of unhealthy rhythms, a great way to embrace the gift of accountability and mutual encouragement so that we can make positive and lasting changes in our discipleship to even become more free. But all this begins with letting God in to embrace the chance for God to pass us by. If we are to experience the presence of God in the ways that we were created for, we're going to have to let God in. God wants us to know that this is really, really good news for us as a church. When we let God in, he will transform us. He will nourish us, and he will equip us for the journey that lies ahead. That's exactly what God did with Israel. God began the process of transforming them into a free people at the table. Feeding them was the first step on the path towards freeing them for, from their work and forming them for worship. And I think sometimes we miss this opportunity. And the result is that too often in our lives, our encounters with God and God's people end up being transactional instead of transformational. We appreciate coming to third, right? Coming on a Sunday, a Sunday morning, you know, and passing by God's house. We love that. But really allowing God to pass by our own place 
to set up shop in our own space, inviting God into our household, into our lives, into the hidden places of our lives. That's a little bit harder. It's a little bit different. Perhaps it's because deep, deep down we know that God's presence always brings death and deliverance. And death always precedes deliverance. This death is real. It's the cost of deliverance. Death to the things that are functional idols in our lives, the things we've allowed to usurp God's role for us, the things that we've become so comfortable embracing, the things that we think we are holding on to, but that in reality are having a hold on us. There is a cost to the Passover meal. There is a cost to the preparation of God's people for freedom. There's a cost even to our freedom. As we reflect on this series and the meals that God invites us into, what is God preparing us for? And what will it cost us? For Israel, God's preparing them for worship. And worship required that they leave some things behind. So what is your personal Egypt? What do you need to leave behind as you enter the next season of your walk with God? What is our communal Egypt, whether here at 3rd or among churches here in America? What are things that still have a hold on us as churches? What things are keeping us from moving towards worship? In our society, I think there are a wide variety of things that can hold us back from the freedom and the worship we were destined for, particularly as churches. Sometimes it's our idol of comfort, our unwillingness to try new things as a church because a lack of predictability makes us feel less secure. It's scary for us. Sometimes it's our addiction to worldly markers of success because we're constantly comparing our attendance or our online following or our marketing or whatever to other churches, wondering what they're doing down the street or down the street, right, the other way. Sometimes it's an obsession with power that manifests as white cultural normativity masquerading as the gospel. Sometimes it's an implicit xenophobia that expresses itself as a lack of hospitality to the newcomer. God wants to lead us out of bondage and into freedom so that we can worship and engage in God's mission and so that other people can become free too. From the days of Abraham, it was clear that God's vision for the world was that Israel's freedom would play a role in the ultimate freedom of all nations, of all people. That's what God had his eyes set on from the beginning. But this requires leaving Egypt behind. This requires embracing a new normal. Now, I'm not saying that because I think, oh, this is a really easy thing to do. Otherwise, we would have all done it. It's not easy. It can be hard relinquishing, relinquishing the familiarity of our lives, even when it's the familiarity of our own chains. Oftentimes, meals lie at the center of this tension for us. And when God establishes the Passover meal, he draws Israel into that tension. I think it's important to remember that when we look at this story, we do so from many, many years later, right? We know how the rest of the story goes, either from reading the text or, for me and my friend, watching Charlton Heston. We know what's going to happen, right? They're going to leave the suffering. They're going to enter the promised land. But for those of us who, or those of them who were living it, the future was actually uncertain. They didn't know. A new normal likely brought some stress, some anxiety, some uneasiness about what was ahead. Sure, they wanted to be out of slavery, but it's only three chapters later that you see the Israelites begin to complain to Moses and say that they would be better off if, you know, if they had stayed in Egypt, where they could eat what they wanted. In chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, I'll just read it briefly. It says, 
In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire nation to death. They were not eager for a new normal. The Passover is the first of many reminders that God's presence has inaugurated a new season for them. And they weren't fully ready for this. But sometimes we have to embrace a new normal. I was reminded of this several years ago when in 2015, my mother passed away after a two-year battle with cancer. And I remember a few months later, much of my family gathered together um, to celebrate Thanksgiving for the first time without her. Now, one thing that my mother was known for was her yeast rolls. They were literally legendary. And I cannot think of a Thanksgiving that we had that did not involve these amazing yeast rolls. Each year, they were the highlight of the meal. Perfect taste, perfect texture, perfect consistency. And one of the things we had done the year before she passed was to actually take down, write down the recipe because you got to have these rolls, right? So after she passed, I was determined that I would make these rolls just like my mom did. So my wife, Diamond, and I tag-teamed, and we started prepping the dough and then prepping the yeast. And so um, before I get into the story, I am curious, who here has made yeast rolls? Nice. Fantastic. Fantastic. You're in good hands as a community. Um, Now, Diamond and I had never made yeast rolls, but for those of you who have, you probably know that a big part of making yeast rolls is knowing how to prepare the yeast. Yeast is a fungus. And in warm water, it begins to bubble a little bit, right? And you put it in the dough, and then it, in a warm environment, it rises. That's what's supposed to happen. But when we added yeast to the water, the water was actually too hot. Now, unsurprisingly, this made the yeast hot. That's not good, because if the yeast is too hot, you can kill it, and then it will not actually do what you tell it to do. It will not rise. So we didn't realize this, so we just went for it. And uh, what we ended up with was something that looks like this. So this, my friends, is flatbread. (laughs) Now, when this happened, I was very disappointed. Um, You know, if you go to a restaurant, you order some really fluffy yeast rolls, and then it comes out looking like this, that's going to be a problem, right? Um, Unless it's non-bread, because that means it's, you know, modern-day manna from heaven, which is amazing. But anyways, I was disappointed, right? This is not what I had planned on happening. And to this day, I've made good rolls, but they've never quite been what they are supposed to be. Like, every time something goes wrong. The first year, I killed the yeast. Another year, my flour ratio was off. So the bread rose, but it tasted like flour. Um, One year, I, for reasons unknown, decided to um, grease the pan with butter instead of oil. And what we ended up with was this. (laughs) It's not good. I just, I didn't really learn how to do it. I just went for it. Um, so obviously the bombs were burned. That wasn't great. Just last year, I thought I'd crack the code because we were, um, soon my family getting together with other family at an Airbnb. And I was like, I got it. I know how to grease pan. I know how to make the stuff rise. I know the amount of ratios, but I didn't realize that the oven that we were using heated unevenly. So half of it was burned and half of it was great. <laughs> so I'm telling myself that Thanksgiving 2022 will be the year of bread breakthrough for my household. And I'm stepping out on faith on that, but um, we're going to have to wait and see. But one thing I reflected on during this experience was that preparing this bread was this tangible way to remember the loss of my mother. But then it became a concrete sign that things were also going to be different now. 
As much as I wanted to duplicate what my mother could do in the kitchen, we were now in a new season. Once I accepted that it was okay that it was a new season and that things didn't have to be just like my mother's roles, the meal became a way to acknowledge death while embracing a new future. Israel was faced with the same reality thousands of years ago. In the midst of real death and the loss of the familiar, they had to prepare for a new season. They had to step into freedom and a new kind of future with God. And one question this raises for us is, how might we move into the next season of our individual and collective discipleship? How might we move into the season, especially coming out of a pandemic? How do we pursue and promote the freedom that God desires for us so that we might live faithfully and worship in our own moment? The first lesson the Passover teaches us is that we must tell the story. We must tell the story. We must tell the story of God's work. That's what Israel did. For those of you who participated in Seder meals, you're likely familiar with the Haggadah, a liturgy that is used to retell and discuss the story of the Exodus. At each Passover, each Passover, the Jews would tell the story in word and in song. And I love that the story is told tangibly, from the shank bone representing the sacrifice to the bitter herbs signifying the bitterness of bondage, to the leafy vegetable dipped in salt to remind them of the tears that were shed. The story becomes palpable. What story are we telling here at Third Church? What story are we telling in the words that are uttered while we're in worship? And what stories are we proclaiming with our lives tangibly throughout the week? What story are we telling? Are we telling the story of a God whose presence means we are committed to leaving behind the bondages of personal sin so that we can pursue worship? Or do we find ourselves like Israel, longing for the familiarity of Egyptian food? Are we telling the story of a God whose presence means we are committed to rejecting systemic sin in our society so that the marginalized can experience freedom? Or are we tempted to remain in the comfort of unjust social structures when they don't affect us? For example, if we feel the urgency of protecting the unborn, but lack the urgency of caring for mothers-to-be who live in poverty because we think that won't affect us, what story are we telling? The story we tell reveals what we think about the God of Israel, the God that we claim to follow. God hears the cries of all of his people. What story are we telling? The other thing I love about what Israel does is that after they tell the story, they take concrete steps towards worship. They actually left where they were, and they began to move. So you may be here, and you may already be aware of changes in your life that the presence of God is requiring of you. Perhaps what's needed is to discern the concrete next step that it will take to make that change last. It's great to hear a sermon from a preacher or you know, an encouragement from a friend to change, but we can only go so far if we haven't changed the context of, our, of the decisions we're making sometimes. So to give you an example, if you struggle with alcoholism, but you go to bars every night and, you know, and party with friends every day, like, a concrete practice and change might be to replace that with something else that's a communal activity that's more formative for you or to change the amount of accessible alcohol in your own home, right? That's just one example. But the point is that marrying our commitments with concrete action is crucial. Otherwise, it's just words. Israel took tangible steps towards freedom. What new or next steps will we take? As you take a moment to consider this for yourself, 
it's often a good, um, a good practice to find someone you can share that with, someone who can hold you accountable, but also someone who can walk with you. I believe that on the other side of this commitment is a chance at real freedom. Imagine what kind of worshiping community we would be, what kind of witness we could be in this city if this were true of all of us. We might see our world taste God's freedom. We might taste and see the transformative power and presence of the living God, the God of Israel. And knowing that we can't do this of our own strength, I think it's really important that we pray. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me that God would do this work among us and in us and ultimately through us. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for being a God of freedom, for being a God of deliverance, and for being a God who does not forget about his people. Thank you that the cries of your people, the suffering, um, all, of, all the struggles that we go through in this life, thank you that those cries do not fall on deaf ears when it comes to you. Thank you that your deep, deep love leads you to reach out to us, has led you to send your son for us, and does lead you to allow your spirit to empower us to live differently, that the world might taste and see that you are good. So God, we ask that your spirit would do the work that we cannot do. That God, you would give us the conviction and the strength to do the things that we can do. And we pray that in this process, God, you would be glorified, that we would be edified, and that um, your name will be exalted. You said in your word that when you are lifted up, you would draw all to yourself. So God, we pray that that will be real in our world today. It's in Christ's name. Amen.